the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. A true confession time. Those of you that have been a longtime listener to this program or have read uh, my um, bio workup on the website probably know that I'm a bit of a collector. I'm have a um, collection of antique and vintage radios that span the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that I've been collecting and slowly restoring down through many, many years. It's just kind of a, of a hobby. Many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, I began collecting 78 records and have, um, down through the years by visiting quite a number of <laughs> flea markets and garage sales and the like, amassed a pretty good-sized collection there, too. And you know, after a while, you you begin to realize that as much as you might uh, enjoy collecting stuff, either because you do it out of a hobby or sometimes you do it because you gives, it gives you a sense of, of emotional security or you just can't throw the stuff out, and then you begin to realize that slowly you're overwhelmed by it all. I guess the question is, as we talk today about this issue of feeling stuffed or overstuffed by stuffed, how do we deal with it all? Um, this can run the gambit of those on the extreme end of the continuum that are um, perhaps potential candidates for the Hoarders TV program to people that maybe don't live under piles of garbage, but they still have so much stuff in their life that they feel completely overwhelmed by it. And it begs the question, are you overwhelmed by life that you become overwhelmed by stuff? Or is it vice versa? We're going to get some wonderful insights today from best-selling author Ruth Sukup. Her new book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. She is the um, founder of livingwellspendingless.com and creator of the Living Well Planner. We'll tell you more about how you can find out uh, details concerning her ministry a little bit later on in tonight's program. And uh, meanwhile, Ruth, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's talk about this issue. I've, I've had a bit of experience in dealing with this of recent times um, with family members that have passed away. And um, yes. as is typical, you have to come in and become the cleanup party. And um, it's, uh, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes when you're going through years of things that have been collected, some stuff very lovingly, other things that seem to be, from your perspective, kept for no good potential reason. And of course, as, as we try to figure out why we're so attached to stuff as it is, uh, it would seem to me that a lot of this has to do with just the, the culture of materialism that we have in the world today. I think it does have a lot to do with the culture of materialism. I think we are inundated with messages every time we turn around saying, you know, buy more, buy more, get this. This is going to be the thing that's going to make you happy. This is the thing that's going to make you more efficient. This is the thing that's going to get you organized. 
and we buy into every single message, and, and sometimes not even every single message, but we buy into some of the messages, and that's enough because there's so much, and it's so pervasive, and it ends up filling our life, and everything we think is going to make our life simpler actually only serves to complicate everything. And, uh, you know, some of this begs the, the, the age-old, uh, which came first, chicken or egg question. Is it a sense <laughs> of people who become so overwhelmed by life that they eventually become overwhelmed by stuff? There's things going on, and so it's it's less a matter of having energy to go through, tidy the house, throw things away, things get put off, procrastination creeps in, uh, all of that? Or is it a case where people kind of give up because they become so overwhelmed by stuff that it seems as if they, they just don't know where to begin? They're not quite certain how all of this happened. They just know that now that they're there, they have no idea how to begin addressing it. Is it either or or what? I think it's probably a little bit of both. It's almost like a a crazy cycle that we find ourselves getting into where one makes the other worse and you you don't know exactly what started, but they kind of, once you're in there, it's really hard to get out of the cycle. Um, And, you know, it's really not just the, the physical clutter and the physical stuff in our life that weighs us down. It's, and for some people there's, you know, it's sometimes it's the physical clutter and then other times it's the mental clutter. It's the way that we overstuff our schedules. It's the, paperwork and the information overload that's just constantly bombarding us. Uh, Or it could even be the guilt that we feel, you know, you were talking about when you inherit other people's stuff, we deal with with that. And that's something that I talk about in the book as well. So there's lots of different ways that it manifests itself. But I think the results are often the same as this feeling of overwhelm. Now, in my recent experience in dealing with this with a family member, uh, part of it, I think it has to do with the byproduct of being a Depression-era baby, somebody who went through that period of time that knows what it's like to go without and therefore has a very um, conservative side to them, uh, a fondness of recycling, though things never quite make it all the way to the recyclers. And so, you know, I guess it becomes a way that that some of this can be um, justified. In other words, uh, plastic margarine tubs are saved because they can be recycled and used for food. So if you keep one or two, why not keep 50 or 100? Or uh, toilet paper rolls that can be kept because you can use them as great little holders for extension cords. But then again, how many extension cords do you really practically have? Aluminum foil, well, aluminum foil can be flattened out and reused. And before you know it, it's not just an accumulation of things that are of value, things you want to keep, things that have sentimental value, but then you quickly get overwhelmed by all of this other stuff that, quite frankly, at the end of the day, has no real intrinsic value to it. But your sense of having lived through times of great sacrifice and not having compels you to keep all of this. Yes. Yeah. And that, and you find that a lot in that depression era generation. And, you know, there's, I, I, there's not necessarily an easy solution for that either because it's almost this mindset that's so ingrained. But then what's happening now is that generation is beginning to, you know, pass on there it's the kids that are inheriting all of this this whole house full of stuff and some of it is is worthwhile and a lot of it is not and having to sift through and deal with that and that only adds to the overwhelm because we already have all of our own stuff and then we get other people's stuff added into the mix as well so it gets it gets to be this 
crazy, crazy cycle of so much stuff, and what do you do with it? And there's a little bit of justification to this, isn't there? Because let's face it, we have been uh, hit over the head with this message of recycle things, save the planet, conserve. And so, therefore, as I found with this one family member, uh, there was great care and effort given to recycling plastic and aluminum and glass and paper and, and stacks and piles and things and, and, and relatively organized. It's just that it never seemed to make it to the recyclers. And before you know it, you get overwhelmed by all of these things that, yes, have some you know use in a recycling environment, but I wonder if some of these messages today don't become a crutch that people can use or pretext that allows them to continue to accumulate because they think someday I'll use it again or I'll recycle it. Well, I think the idea that I might use this someday is definitely one of the big reasons that people hang on to stuff. And there's a lot of guilt that gets attached to stuff. And this is something that I really talk about in, in my book on stuff, where there is there are lots of different types of guilt that get attached to stuff. So some of it is, well, this could be useful and I don't want to throw it away because I might use it someday. There's guilt that gets attached to stuff because it's an unfulfilled goal or an unfulfilled dream. So say you bought some scrapbooking material because you have grand visions of creating this scrapbook of all of your memories and you never got around to it. And then you don't want to get rid of the stuff because if you do, it means that you failed in this idea that you had um, of scrapbooking or you know you don't want to get rid of something because it was a gift or because you spent lots of money on it and so all of these different guilt um, things manifest themselves in different ways but it all ends up resulting in holding on to too much stuff and then that in turn makes us feel guilty because we're you know our lives are cluttered and we feel overwhelmed and we're guilty because we're holding on to this stuff and yet we feel guilty for getting rid of it and so again it gets us into this cycle of not being able to let go but not wanting to hold on to stuff either and the solution for that really is a couple of different things you know for sentimental items we really have to learn how to separate out the memories from the stuff and that's hard isn't it because there's that sense of guilt over gifts or something that's tied into sentimental value especially if it's a loved one who's passed away Yes. I, I found myself going through and finding things when my parents passed that uh, under any other circumstances, if somebody had said, do you need this? Do you want this? Does this mean? Nah, not really. Oh, you know, mom gave it to me 10 years ago, but yeah, that can go away. After she passed away, all of a sudden, things that were the most insignificant become of great value because you reason in your mind, well, that's the last time she will ever give that to me, or I know that I'll never receive a gift from her again, and there suddenly we assign tremendous emotional value to something that, quite frankly, may be of no value whatsoever. Yes, and that is incredibly difficult, and I understand exactly what you're talking about. We just went through that, um, and I talk about that in the book as well. With my mother-in-law passed away about four years ago, and then my sister-in-law um, tragically passed away about two years ago. And so we inherited both of their, you know, estates and had to had to kind of go through that process twice, just back to back. And it was really difficult because you feel like you are throwing away somebody's life when you have to get rid of their stuff. And even though it's it was a lot of it wasn't sentimental necessarily to us, it was sentimental because we loved them. And and I think that's a little bit what you're speaking about. And so we really had to get to 
this point where we realized that the memories of our loved ones were not the same as their stuff. We had to separate the memory from the stuff and realize that memories and stuff are not the same. And that's really the only way that you can kind of deal with this influx of other people's stuff from a sentimental standpoint. We're visiting today with Ruth Sukup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. For a lot of us, this is a difficult issue to deal with. It seems like the older we get, we certainly tend to accumulate lots and lots more stuff. How do we begin to give some order to our lives that will not only um, deal with the issue, but, but ultimately give us the kind of liberty that we're looking for? And I'll give you one hint. When we come back after the break and continue our conversation with Ruth, I'm going to suspect she's going to tell us that the problem here is not a lack of space. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting with New York Times bestselling author Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Ruth, to most of us that are collectors or gatherers of lots of stuff, of value and otherwise, uh, the typical explanation, at least in our own mind, and perhaps even the justification to others is, it isn't an issue that I have too much stuff. You don't understand, Ruth. It's just that I don't have enough space. I need more closet space. My house isn't big enough. I need to run out to Walmart and go get some storage containers. That will solve my stuff problem. What about that reasoning? Oh, and I am so, so guilty of that mentality. In fact, for years, I shuffled my stuff around thinking, I live in Florida where we don't have a lot of storage space because there are no basements here in Florida. And there, you know, you can't store stuff in the garage or the attic because it's too hot. And so I would complain all the time that, oh, we just don't have enough closet space. There's no place to store anything. And I would buy more containers and more boxes and more bins trying to organize it. And I, I just kept thinking, it's just that I don't have the right system. I can't stay organized because I don't have the right system. And it finally, finally occurred to me at some point that my problem wasn't a lack of storage space at all. It was that I just had too much stuff. And every time I was going to Target to buy more organizing containers, I was also buying more stuff. And because, you know, I'd get caught up in the cute pillow or the cute picture frame or the cute candle because everything there is cute. And so it was something that I just had to really realize that my problem wasn't storage space at all. It was it was definitely the fact that I had too much stuff. Now you and realize, that, of course, the entire storage space industry out there, everybody that rents these lockers and pods <laughs> and everything else, they're going to be very disappointed to hear this because they have spent decades convincing us that it's not a matter of having too much stuff. It's a matter of not having enough space to put it in. <laughs> Yes. Well, I'm sure they'll be doing just fine with the with the rate at which Americans are buying stuff. I don't <laughs> think they have to worry too much. But, you know, it really is in our lives. I think it's such a matter of learning how to stop the flow of stuff that's coming in. And I, I have an acronym that I like to use to help people when they're trying to declutter their lives. Of It's sort of a four-step process, but the acronym is FREE, F-R-E-E. And so the first step is your F step, which is to fight to stop the flow. And until you do that, you really can't work on anything else. Because if you're still, all the decluttering and all the purging in the world is not going to help you if you're still going to Target every week and buying new things and filling up your home. So that's really, really the most important element of decluttering is to just actually be very vigilant about not letting any new stuff in. 
that's the first step. Then second, you can start working on ruthlessly purging. So that's your R step is that you definitely want to begin getting rid of the things that you don't need. And my criteria for that is anything that is currently useful despite who gave it to you and despite how much it costs. Well, wait a minute, Ruth. Let me interrupt. I I realize that this stack of magazines is five feet tall, but you don't understand there are recipes in there that I need to cut out of there. Or, or, you know, a lot of the – for a guy, a lot of those magazines, you know, Popular Mechanics and, uh, you know, the latest sporting magazines, you know, I want to be able to keep all of the information about the amazing season that the San Francisco Giants had last year. And so I just need time to – I'm going to – this weekend, I'm going to set aside time and clip out all those articles. Are you really? You're not convinced, are you? (laughs) Because everybody who says that – you're right. The The question really is, are you really? Because the answer is no, not really. That's just a pretext to keep it all. Right. And that's where we have to really be honest with ourselves and say, currently useful, have I have I used this? And I, have I looked at these magazines in the last six months or a year? And if the answer is no, and I can understand that, that hanging on to old magazines, because I actually do hang on to old magazines, not and and I don't look at them that often, but I do look at them sometimes. And so, and I think they're pretty, and I have them in my office, and I have them stacked and organized. So one of the things that's really, really important, that, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is creating a vision for your home. And that's really important, because a lot of times we have this idea of what our home is supposed to look like, and what, how we're supposed to be organized, and how we're supposed to live clutter-free. And so if we, if we read magazines and we look at, you know, House Beautiful or Pinterest and we have all these visions in our head of what the ideal is supposed to be. So a lot of the things we buy are based on the ideal and not how we actually use our home. But at the same time, we all have a different threshold for what we can tolerate in terms of clutter. What is clutter to me might not feel like clutter to you and vice versa. So the first thing that you really, really need to do is is become absolutely clear about what your vision is of your home and how you actually use your home and who you share your home with and how they use your home so that you can set up a standard for kind of what you're going for. Isn't there, though, a lot of justification that takes place, uh, Ruth, when it comes to this whole definition of how you define clutter versus how I define it? And I ask that question going back to a loved one who, if queried and pressed hard enough, might someone admit that, yeah, it's a little bit cluttered and yet difficult to admit clearly, yeah, there's a lot of clutter here. When it's down to a pathway down the hallway, it's clutter. It, 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 it's hard to, you know, I, I know that there are extremes. Somebody says if there's, if there's two file folders on the desk, that's clutter. And others say there could be 20 file folders, stacks of file folders on the desk. But so long as they're all organized, not strewn every which way, and I know what's in each pile, I don't consider it clutter. But I'm talking about those extreme degrees where people justify, uh, perhaps not as much to others as they do to themselves, that it really isn't clutter when at the end of the day it is clutter. Well, I think that the criteria needs to be what's causing stress. If it if it does not if it honestly does not bother you and you you like things a certain way and it doesn't cause frustration and it doesn't cause stress, then more power to you. Then I think you know you need to understand that. But a lot of times with people, 
and clutter, it is causing stress. And there are things that are, are weighing down on you. You know, it might be the stress of not ever being able to find anything. And that is stressful. Not paying bills on time because your your paperwork is completely unorganized. And Or it might be that, you know, you're a, a, a couple lives together and they have different thresholds. And so they fight a lot about a mess because one, the mess doesn't bother them at all. And the other is, is very bothered by it. So when they're when the clutter is causing stress either in your relationship or in your life or um, in any sort of area, then that's when I think that it becomes problematic. People can have different thresholds, but if there's a threshold that's causing stress, that's where you need to start addressing it. And of course, there's a degree to which uh, the old adage it takes two to tango. And uh, sometimes we find people are drowning together, aren't they? Where maybe uh, maybe one spouse after a season just gives up because they've not been able to encourage the, the clutter collector to break the habit? Oh, absolutely. I think, <laughs> you know, I like to say that couples sharpen each other's swords, but it can go the other way too. And sometimes, you know, you, you just for the sake of peace, you end up um, one gives in. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Ruth Sokup, a guest today. Her book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul, even organizing things like all the paperwork that in life are necessities. How do we deal with that? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the discussion with Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, decluttering your home, mind, and soul. Now, I made mention before the break, Ruth, we have everything from sentimental things like birthday cards, anniversary cards that we wish to keep down through the years. My grandmother had a collection that when she passed away, we discovered went back all the way to Valentine's Day cards in the 1920s. Some amazing stuff and very grateful that she kept all of that. But then we add to that the list of recipes and news magazine articles. And then, of course, you have everything related to income taxes and and legal papers, some people of which keep not only years, decades worth of stuff. I'll tell you a story. I've done this show for 25 years plus now. And in the early days, pre-internet, everything was paper and everything got filed in filing cabinets. And over the course of many years, I had accumulated a total of four five-drawer vertical file filing cabinets. That's 20 filing cabinet drawers worth of stuff. And it got to the point where we finally realized with the advent of the Internet and the ability to scan papers and save them into a computer that there was no need for all of that anymore, that any of the documents and information and notes and resources that had been accumulated over the course of a decade, two decades, that had all been neatly filed away could actually all be neatly ground up into scrap paper and all of it could be utilized or gained off the Internet. Is that one approach to go electronic when it comes to managing a lot of the information that we want to keep from family photographs to, quite frankly, all the legal paperwork necessary for tax season and the like? Well, actually, you know, the Internet is kind of a double-edged sword because it has improved the the amount of paper, I guess, lessened the amount of actual physical paper we have, but it has increased the amount of information that we have coming at us so much that it is just as overwhelming, if not more overwhelming, than the actual physical paper that we have piling up on our desk. And I like to say that paper paper, paper clutter and information clutter, which I kind of view as almost the same thing because the problem is the same. It's not really a clutter problem, 
but it's a procrastination problem. And what I mean by that is that most of the paper that we get and that comes to us and most of the information that comes to us via email is all requiring our action. So what it's doing is overwhelming us because we're procrastinating to make a decision and we don't want to have to make a decision about all of these things because our brains can't handle that number of decisions all of the time. And so we procrastinate it and, the, and it piles up and then it gets worse. And again, we get into another cycle of craziness because there's so many decisions that have to be made at any given time. And there's so many things demanding our attention and demanding our response. If somebody emails me, I'm expected to return their, their email and then they email me back. And it's this kind of endless cycle of, of need and response that we have to attend to all the time. And that becomes very, very overwhelming. I think there was a confession I read in the book <laughs> related to things like keeping emails or keeping voicemail messages for a long time to the point that the box got filled. I, I know several people that have that same habit. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I have offered that as a solution because voicemails are another thing. So what I did I was my voicemail box, I let it fill up. Um, about two years ago, and it has been full ever since. So it is impossible to leave me a voicemail. And that has uncomplicated my life in so many ways. It's amazing. I never have to listen to voicemails. I don't know if somebody can't get a hold of me. They try back later, and or they send me a text message, and, <laughs> and it works out so much better for me. It's just one less thing that I have to check and that I have to listen to and then I have to respond to. And so you know, I, I don't know that that's the best solution, but I think that one of the things that you can do, and this is what goes for paper clutter or email clutter, is create an information filter for yourself. So basically what that means is that it's, it's just a set of internal rules that tells our brain what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And it's some sort of little guideline that we have that our brain can automatically go, oh, this came in here. And so this goes over here. And so it's an if this, then that. And if, our, if we can set up enough of those easy rules for our brain, then it sifts everything for us. And we don't have to make quite as many decisions, which means we're not quite as, quite as overwhelmed. Is it helpful, too, to come up with a management program, so to speak, in your own mind that helps reduce the stuff before it becomes stuff? And I asked that question because I started doing something many, many years ago. Uh, I, I located a recycling bin very near the entrance to the house from the garage so that when I come in uh, after work and I go through the mail, there are flyers and circulars and petitions and ads and all of that stuff. I don't give it a chance to get into the house. It makes it as far as that front door. If it has a name on it that maybe I think, oh, I don't want this to be just thrown into the trash can, so I'm going to shred it, I'll maybe tear that off. But otherwise, I will tell you this, with great disappointment to all of you out there that send me ads and circulars and flyers in the mail, it never makes it across the threshold because it all stops in the recycling bin at the garage door. Is that a good idea? That, that is exactly how an information filter works. You have already set one up without even knowing it. It's your if is if you've got junk mail, it goes straight into the recycling bin, and that's exactly how it works. So when you can set up those type of simple, simple rules, and it, and I mean it has to be simple. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to getting organized, we think we have to set up these complicated systems and filing systems, and everything has to be color-coded, and 
we overcomplicate the process and then what happens is we don't follow through on it because it's too complicated to keep up on. It's too complicated for the rest of our family to understand and it doesn't work. But the simpler you can make the system, the simpler you can make the rule where it becomes so automatic that you don't even think about it, that's when you start to eliminate the overwhelm. Let's talk about some other ideas in terms of eliminating the overwhelm. And of course, the big question is, how do we even get started? And and I, I've gone through this myself where you, you look at the piles and go, my goodness, it goes from that corner to that corner. I, I Do I begin at the bottom and work my way to the top? Do I start at the top or work my way to the bottom? And, and by the time you've contemplated this for a good five or ten minutes, it's sometimes just easier to say, mm, you know what, I'll, I'll come back to this tomorrow. How do you begin to get the process really started? Well, you know, there's a couple of different things depending on your personality and depending on what you have time for. One of the things I offer in the book is um, a list of quick wins, things that you can do in five minutes or less. And sometimes that's really helpful for people. Once you see a little bit of progress, it helps you um, snowball into more progress. Another thing you can do is do, you know, tackle one area of your home per day and commit to that. And we actually have a challenge um, on my blog, Living Well, Spending Less, called 31 Days to a Clutter-Free Life, which gives you 31 days of of decluttering projects. But one other suggestion that I offer in the book is what I call the Unstuffed Weekend Challenge. So that is sort of like a quick win on steroids because you set aside an entire weekend starting on Friday evening and going through Sunday evening, and you're, you plan ahead and you plan your meals ahead so that you've got easy meals. You don't have to worry about cooking and cleaning up and you know, arrange child care if you've got kids at home or if they're older, you can have them help. But the entire weekend, and I give you an hour-by-hour schedule of where you start and what you do, you set the timer, you do all different activities throughout the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, you've made a lot of progress. And and that can give you enough confidence to keep going forward. And I should mention to listeners, there is a complete suggested plan of attack, so to speak, inside the pages of Ruth's new book that will be very helpful in helping you to kind of get that strategy up and running. Before our time winds down here, Ruth, I want you to say a word about the impact of stuff on relationships. And you talk about this, too, in the book. Uh, We've certainly heard and and maybe even directly experienced cases where stuff comes between us and others. Um, Sometimes it's a substitute for others. Sometimes maybe it's safer than relationships. Speak to that, if you would, please. Well, you know, in the book, I do talk a lot about um, decluttering your relationships and the importance of decluttering your relationships. And that gets a little bit tricky because we can't unstuff people like we can unstuff you know, our clothing that we no longer want. You don't throw people away. And that's not what I'm advocating. But, you know, in today's culture with social media and in the Internet, it has sort of cheapened our friendships a lot, I think. And we have very, a very broad, wide range of friendships, and yet they're very shallow. And so I think that it's, that's something that's really missing in people's lives, and it, it takes a lot away from our lives when we're not cultivating those deep and meaningful friendships. But we can't be, have deep and meaningful friendships with 500 people on Facebook. You have to be real selective, and that's what I, what I talk about in the book is about how you kind of focus on those friendships that are really the most meaningful and, and make those a priority in your life. It is a great way to get started with some spring cleaning to not only unstuff your your house, 
but also to declutter your home, mind, and soul. The book's called Unstuffed. It's an easy read and one that I think um, no matter how much you personally may struggle with this or a loved one does, I think can be an invaluable tool getting that process started. Check it out. The book, newly published by Zondervan. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Also on Ruth's website, livingwellspendingless.com. That's livingwellspendingless.com. And our thanks to Ruth Sokup for being with us. The book, Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There are lots of books written about faith, to be sure, and lots of books about sports. But a book that combines both faith and sports, in this case, God and golf, well, probably not so many. And yet we're going to meet a guy who wrote just one. Joining me today in studio is the senior pastor from Faith Fellowship in San Leandro, Pastor Gary Mortera. Pastor Gary, good to see you. Craig, good to see you, friend. So golf and God, huh? That's yeah. kind of an interesting title, but in many ways kind of describes your life's journey, doesn't it? Yep. I was uh, chasing the golf tour when the Lord called me and saved me and wanted me to go in the ministry, and I kicked against that like Jonah. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to play golf, but the Lord, uh, he won. You can only fight him so long. And I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did. Uh, but I still compete at a high level at times. And uh, I wanted to evangelize some of the guys that I play with and actually wrote it as a booklet to give out as a testimonial, put the gospel of Jesus in there. And so it's my life story in golf, short version, uh, but the gospel is weaved all through the book. You are a Bay Area kid, born and raised, I think, in Oakland. Yep, 35 years and the the trajectory in your life took a turn, as you suggest. Uh, you were looking at, desirous of, a life in the pro-golfing world. Mm -hmm. And yet, as a young man, raised in the church, I should say. Yep. Uh, but God wasn't always a major component in your life in terms of of where you were headed, at least not, not early on as a young man, was he? At age 16, uh, I said to my parents, I'm not going to church anymore because you want me to go. They were very godly, raised us in church uh, multiple times. Um, and about 18, I really took a left turn into the world and you know tried most of the flavors that are out there. Uh, so from 18 to 22, I just was living a young man's life. And, uh, but God just continued pressing in through different avenues and different people. And so one night when I was 22 years old, uh, I was watching the Raiders play the Seattle Seahawks on Monday night with my buddies, uh, getting loaded and uh, just doing the thing. And all of a sudden, a sense came over me, I, I got to get out of here. And I said to my friends, I got to go. And they said, go? Go where? Where are you going? The Raiders are on. I said, I got to go to church, man. And they said, it's Monday night. I said, I got to go. And uh, something was just compelling me to leave. And so I got in my car and drove to a little church in North Oakland. And I uh, sat in the back row. A young black preacher was preaching on the love of God. And I knew it was time for me to surrender my life. And so when he had the altar call, I went forward and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I said, Lord, if you could die for me, then I could live for you. And it changed my life. So those seeds that had been planted in your life early on yeah. clearly had an impact. And a praying mom. My mom would, every time I would come home late at night, she'd be on her knees praying and I said, Mom, why are you always praying? And she said, I'm praying for you and your brother, that you'll surrender your life to the Lord. And it used to hound me. <laughs> that, that early sense of rebellion, was that more toward 
conformity, uh, parents, I mean, we all go through those stages, but sometimes that rebellion early on can be rebellion toward God because we have a sense that there's a calling. We have a sense that he wants something of us, and every bit of our flesh is fighting against that. What was it for you? Well, you know, you think about the nation of Israel, right? God gives them his holy laws. And yet all the nations around them were so free to do whatever they wanted to do. And so that's why God said, don't hang out with them. Don't intermarry with them because you'll be tempted to go their way because the world system seems more attractive and more fun. Um, And living for the Lord is is a narrow path, as Jesus said. And so going to public schools, you know, hearing what's going on, watching what's going on, all the women that are out there, all the stuff. You know, it seemed more attractive than going to church and serving the Lord. And so I, as a young man, just opted for that for a while and realized after a few years, this is empty. This is this takes you nowhere. And so uh, that's when I started to respond to the Lord. And perhaps for a lot of us, that, that sense that there is a gnawing there, there is that some describe it as a God-shaped vacuum that is looking to be fulfilled by God, yeah. and yet we tend to try to put everything else in there, be it relationships, money, drugs, sports, fast living. And yeah, I guess even maybe some eavesdropping on this conversation today would say, yeah, a day on the golf course on a Sunday uh, playing 18 holes sounds a lot more attractive than sitting in a hard pew for two hours in church on a Sunday morning. And yet, there's something that the church experience, and specifically a relationship with God, will satisfy that a month of Sundays or a lifetime spent chasing that little white ball around on the lawn will never satisfy. That's right. And God's not opposed to us enjoying things. I mean, Paul said in First Timothy chapter 6, God has given us freely everything to enjoy. He just wants to be the center of what we do. He wants to be God to us. And uh, so often we push God out because we want to do life our way, not realizing that tomorrow's promised to no one. I mean, the next breath we take isn't promised to us. And so what really is important? Eternity. That's what's really important. And so how can I live my life, serve God, still enjoy myself, but realize he has a purpose for me? And I'm thankful, Craig, that at age 22, I I was able to see that. It saved me a lot of heartache. There are a lot of people that have a perspective, too, that God is— waiting up in heaven with a large stick, Mm -hmm. just watching our every move, waiting for us to step out of line so he can, boom, bring that stick down on our head. Um, What was that perspective like for you as a young man growing up? Yeah, it was there because obviously I had knowledge of God and and, uh, people that weren't raised in church or in a religious background don't have that deep of a sense of it. But I did. I had that sense. But I just wanted to do my thing. And I would rationalize and justify it. Well, why is this wrong? Well, why can't I do that? So what's the big deal? And so you, you fight against the knowledge that you have. And it's like it says in Romans one eighteen. you know, they suppress the truth of God. And so it's easy to suppress God to do your own thing. But you'll find in the long run, uh, sometimes God will even give you what you want. Uh, I think in the Psalms it says God gave them what they desired, but he sent them leanness of soul. There's just an emptiness in your soul. Okay, I'll let you do it your way. I'll let you go down your path. But it's empty. And so, uh, you know, thankfully at an early age I saw that and I responded to it that Monday night. That was hard walking out of that house that night with my buddies. And they were like, what? It's Monday. Huh? The Raiders are on, man. And uh, But I had to do what was right for me. When you turned that corner, what did the journey look like for you 
early on. You, you've suddenly made this shift where you pronounce at the age of 16, I'm done with organized religion. Suddenly at the age of 22, God himself is tapping you on the shoulder. So now you're beginning to make a pretty massive paradigm shift. Was Huge. there a, a struggle there? And, and was there a sense early on that part of what God had for you would ultimately include full-time ministry? Mm-hmm. Both and. It was a both and. It was a huge struggle because I only knew unsaved friends. And so I'm, I'm coming into a small church, which was Faith Fellowship at the time under Gary Goodell, Ron Cannoli back in the early 80s. And um, so it was a small circle. But my big circle was all the guys and women I used to know, friends. And so here I am shifting out, and they're watching this shift, and they're going, dude, something's changed in you. And uh, so it opened up a huge door of evangelism, but the temptation was still there. And uh, I just made a commitment to the Lord and myself that I was just going to serve the Lord. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're able to do it. Uh, And then all my friends started wanting to know about what is this change. So all of a sudden, here I am preaching to all my unsaved friends, and many of them got saved after that. And so there was the dual thing of, oh, man. That's very that's Egypt, right? It's, I can hear it. <laughs> and yet, wow, the Lord is touching their lives through what he's doing in mine. And it's a process too, isn't it? In the sense that some people falsely think that when they make a commitment to Christ, when they surrender their life to the Lord, while Scripture tells us that all things have changed then, we become a new creature in Christ Jesus, there is, though, that process of surrendering Paul talked about the need to die daily mm-hmm. to the flesh. So there is that process of sanctification that takes a bit more time, isn't there? That's still going on. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> That's 36 years ago, and it's still going on. It's like Paul said, you know, until Christ is formed in you, you know, take you from glory to glory. Um, but, you know, changes should be made immediately. There should be a distinct difference. Uh, what, repentance, metanoia means to turn and go in a different direction, think differently. And God does that. And all of a sudden you're getting your mind transformed by the word and under good teaching and preaching and uh, different influences in your life. You know, you're now you're with a Christian community rather than just an unsaved community. And so it's difficult to live it out in an ungodly world that we live in, but uh, but you can do it. Over time, does that that taste, that desire for things of the old life begin to diminish? You know, the bigger things, yeah, but sin is right there, Craig. I mean, we all have a sin nature. Paul said, it's no longer I, but sin in me that makes me do these things and who will save me from this body of death. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as you know, he said in Galatians 5, that if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the spirit lusts against the flesh. It wars against each other. Um, And so the more you walk in the spirit, the easier it is. Uh, The more you get away from those things, then the flesh wants to take over. Joining me today in studio is Pastor Gary Mortero, who of course is the senior pastor at Faith Fellowship Church located in San Leandro. More information, by the way, about the church online at faith-fellowship.us. That's faith-fellowship.us. Gary also hosts I Speak Life, the radio program, heard weekday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. We'll tell you a bit more about that coming up later on in our conversation. Meanwhile, a brief time out, back with more right after this. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.